Thanks for joining the People of Precision Health podcast, a series by Vibrant Health, where we discuss the unique challenges of building human cohorts for health and clinical research. We talk with experts in population genomics and precision health to explore novel methods and real solutions for engaging the humans behind the data. Dr. Catherine Tosas is a cancer epidemiologist and an assistant professor in the Department of Health Behavior and Policy at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Population Health. She is also a member of the VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center, where she is the founding director for the Office of Catchment Area Data Access and Analysis. Dr. Tosas' research is grounded in health equity and centers on elucidating the role of the microbiome on birth outcomes and on disparate progression of precancerous lesions, specifically in the cervix and lung. She is a principal investigator for multiple foundation-funded, community-engaged research projects addressing systemic or structural inequities in cancer outcomes across Virginia. Dr. Tosas also provides mentorship opportunities to students through her Cancer Outcomes Queries to Understand Inequities Lab. Welcome, Dr. Tosas, to our podcast, People of Precision Health. Thank you, Molly. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to have you today, and I can't wait to un uncover a lot of details that I'm so thrilled to talk about with you today. Um, I want to start with your journey to where you are focused in your research today. The work that you do in increasing health equity is critical, but I'm sure you've had to overcome many obstacles to success. Tell me about your journey. Sure. So... I am born and raised in Ponce, Puerto Rico. I am the first in my family to go to college. So I am, uh, you know, oftentimes I say I am, I am the, right, the first to the, um, you know, to go to college, the first to leave, all of that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, all of those things have, worked uh, comprehensively to get me to where I am, but it's interesting because now um, the way that I frame my journey is to say I was advantaged enough and fortunate enough to be disadvantaged and to have the opportunity to learn and from and grow through those. And so those inform my research, my work, and my views for sure. So how would you say that your ethnicity and race inform your research work broadly and your work as it relates to catchment area data access and alignment, um, as well as community engagement? My race and ethnicity, I mean, they inform everything that I do, right? So we all see, uh, you know, our, our lives and our work through, through the length of our experience. And, you know, I am an Afro-Latina woman, again, first generation. Um, you know, I certainly, I, I say disparities is, is not only like what I do, it's part of who I am. I experience a lot of the um, same issues that, um, that some of the communities that I work with experience in my own skin. I am an only child uh, born out of a mother who was diagnosed with cervical cancer at the age of 33, and hence I'm an only child. Um, you know, I grew up in an area that, you know, we grew up... The, were food insecure, exposed to high structural violence, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
water contamination, uh, poor infrastructure, all of those things. And so when I, when I think about these issues and when I look into these issues, um, you know, perhaps I look at them through that lens or they are very, uh, very forward in, in my mind. I don't have to uh, necessarily read in the literature uh, um, how they impact. I know in my skin how they impact. I grew up, for example, in, uh, you know, in, uh, during a time where water was not yet like fluoridated. And I remember coming to this country and having to have a lot of like dental work. And at one point, a dentist asking me, well, where did you grow up and how old are you? And, and coming to the realization that like, oh, well, you do know that during that time, water was not fluoridated in that area. And therefore, and you're like, Oh, so all of those things certainly inform the work and the research that I do. And this is not to say that to do the kind of work and research that I do, you need to have gone through those experiences. They just put the experiences into a different perspective. So I, when I talk about things that I, I don't talk about them in abstract, I talk about them from firsthand experience. And although I understand the value um, of putting a p-value behind my experience, um, I don't need the p-value to um, know how those experiences get under your skin to change your biology. Yeah, but I think your perspective is so valuable to people. We take so much for granted in a lot of communities, um, really across the this country. And to be collaborating with people who have experienced what it means to uh, be exposed to lower in, lower level infrastructure, um, you know, things that are not as available to families. Having that perspective is a powerful way, uh, I think, to educate people about opportunities to improve and real actionable opportunities uh, to improve access and uh, especially when it comes to research and healthcare. Absolutely. I think some other things that I've that I've learned too, and that I, you know, I talk about this. Uh, for example, I um, I just received my first, um, you know, National Cancer Institute award, and that award, you know, you have an opportunity to write about your experience. And I remember uh, part of my writing about my personal statement was to say, you know, right, I, I, I share some of it. I grew up in a place that was very impoverished. There was, you know, food insecurity. There was structural violence, there was violence, all these things. But when we would go to the doctor with my mother who um, had diabetes, high blood pressure, suffered from obesity, we were exposed to secondhand smoke, but nobody asked, right? Those things were not asked during that time. And to this day, when we talk about social drivers, social determinants, we can say it from the mouth out. Um, but oftentimes, you know, there are so many places where that is not even asked. And so we have a lot of people still to this day that are, in a sense, underdiagnosed, that are um, suffering through those conditions and exposed to those conditions. And um, we still don't know. So we still have a bit of a ways to go. Oh, absolutely, we do. And so I, I think that the the very first step is having these conversations and bringing information and opportunities out of the clinic into the community. And so with that, I want to ask you about a project that you mentioned to me last time we met. I, I want to make sure I get this right. Chickalmany Truth Project. Um, it's a 
very powerful example of the interplay between community engagement and research that can make a real impact in populations, um, in particular indigenous populations. Tell us about that project. Tell us uh, the background of it and about this community that you are working with. Yes. So the Chicomany Truth Project is is a really, really special um, uh, community-engaged research um, project that I co-lead with, with Dr. Maria Thompson, who is a colleague in my uh, Department of Health, Behavior, and Policy, now under the School of Population Health. And it came about actually um, as a community concern. So this is, I'm a cancer epidemiologist. My colleague, Dr. Maria Thompson, Thompson is a health communication specialist. And this just came about because a community member was having a conversation at an event with someone else and said, you know, I've been really concerned. There's a lot of cancers in my community. And every time I go to church, somebody else has died from cancer. My mom just died from non-smoking, you know, from lung cancer. She was never a smoker and she walked two, three miles a day. And, um, and that person happened to know the Massey Cancer Center and, and they, they said, oh, there's this young faculty there. Her name is Dr. Tostas. You should talk to her. She may be interested. <laughs> and so the, she connected us and we, we talked about it. And when she came to talk to me about it, she actually mentioned the word cancer cluster, that she was concerned that there was a cancer cluster in her community. Anybody who knows about cancer clusters know that cancer clusters are pretty tough to to demonstrate, to, to kind of prove in a sense. And I, and I am not an environmental epidemiologist. She had a concern that there is um, a landfill in her community and she was wondering if perhaps contamination from that landfill and their waters and the drinking water, this is a community that is over 85% in well water, could be perhaps part of the culprit as to why her community had so many excess cancers. And I said to her, I, I'm not an environmental epidemiologist, but at least if you bring me the, maybe the, the cancers, if you want, I can make you a nice map. I can, you know, look into the cancers in your community. And, and as an, as an epidemiologist, I can talk about the epidemiology of disease. Well, I requested the cancers and I did put them on a map and, you know, did some calculations. And indeed it looks like the cancers were somewhat clustered in an area it looked like, um, you know, there were excess cancers or, or cancers in excess of what would be expected. So that kind of piqued our interest. So we ended up, um, you know, writing a grant. Now, again, we're not investigating here cancer clusters, but what I thought was really interesting about it was that the community had a concern. And what I always say is that concern deserved to be interrogated. This community has a heightened perception of their cancer risk. So we wanted to interrogate that and wanted to learn about their their cancer knowledge, learn about their health behaviors, and that's what we've been doing. And so we work alongside them, and the project is called the Chickahominy Truth Project, and TRUTH is an acronym that we developed together that stands for Trust, Research, Understand, Teach, and Heal. Um, and they developed a logo for us, which is really beautiful, representative of the project. And, um, you know, trust first, because as you know, there are a lot of really um, poignant and well-deserved reasons why a lot of community member um, has lost trust or has diminished trust for healthcare, for health research, for scientific research. And so the first step here is um, to acknowledge their trust 
to us and to earn their trust. And we do that by collaborating and developing this project together. So in everything we did, um, we were informed by the community. We literally co-created and co-wrote this project. The project entails um, going into the homes of about 150 families within Charles City County, Virginia, um, and within a four-mile radius that we identified as the area where the cancer cluster, you know, is more prominent or the excess cancers are more prominent, and then doing a more broad uh, county-level survey to learn about um, cancer risk factors, uh, behaviors, uh, knowledge, and perceptions in general of cancer risk. We do so alongside community members. So in the spirit of community-engaged research and community-based participatory research, we um, have requested that they partner with us and we train community members uh, to become IRB trained, to become, we train them in um, uh, qualitative interviewing and we go in pairs, a community member paired with someone from the VCU staff or student and we do and conduct a 90 minute, you know, about between 45 and 90 minute interview at home to learn about, um, you know, cancer risk perceptions, healthcare knowledge, et cetera, and conduct water testing, um, you know, to, to test the safety of their well water, which are results that they receive. And eventually at the conclusion of the project, we are hoping that we can take this results and provide them with this collective results and the community can decide what they would like to do with the results of the project. Wow. So I talk to cancer centers in a lot of leadership in population health, in catchment area outreach, pretty much every day. And you have to know how you how unique and special this is. There are so many uh, research leaders, I think, that are not uh, seeing success with activating the community. You're doing an amazing job and an amazing uh, service to researchers, I think, by building that trust. But I want to know, what are the opportunities that researchers, particularly in cancer centers, need to be uh, looking at to engage populations, to empower populations? Because I hear this daily, um, that we are having a hard time reaching indigenous populations, or uh, we are not able to mirror the uh, ethnicities of the of the patients in or potential patients in our catchment area um, what would you suggest to these researchers it's it's really interesting right um, I, I want to make a, a, a quick point here and this is perhaps a personal preference but you know I, I I hope you hear me out here I always say that my job is not to empower the community I don't empower the community because the community empowers itself my job is to align with the community's power to stand alongside them so that they um, you know in their power make decisions as to what they want to do so you know I don't empower anybody and I would uh, discourage researchers to uh, come into a community to empower anybody uh, but rather align with folks power so that that would be one thing but I think the other the other thing too um, as you know we talk in the field and there's a lot of a body of research um, talking about what become not kind of buzzwords which are like cultural competence 
right? There's first cultural awareness, then there's cultural competence, but I think most important is cultural humility. And so I think that to have, remove the cultural and keep the humility, I think to have the humility um, to know what you don't know and to know that as a scientist, Dr. Wynn talks about this bilingualism, Dr. Wynn is our Robert Wynn is our cancer center director for the VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center, and he is, um, you know, a leader and a huge proponent and pretty much the the author of this concept of um, this bidirectionality between the bench and the community and how, um, you know, I extend that by saying that the community should not only be engaged, but it, it should be integrated. He talks about how, um, you know, folks talk about being at the table, but he says, you know, centerpieces are at the table, right? They have nothing to do with the crafting of the menu. They do not partake on the food. So, you know, what does it mean to have the community at the table? What does it mean for the community to be at the table? So the point about it is that as researchers, I think one of the first things we need to practice is that humility, right? That um, if you're not from this community, don't come in pretending like you know what you what you don't know, right? Because you don't know what you don't know. So come in with humility, um, come in with flexibility, oftentimes, you know, we have to recognize as researchers that just by virtue of coming into a community and being the person that comes in with the idea and the funding, there's a power differential. And we have to acknowledge and redistribute that power, figure out how to acknowledge and redistribute that power. And for that, you have you need, again, humility, right? So one of the ways in which, for example, I acknowledge and redistribute that power is by sharing resources. And what I mean by that, and this is not very popular in, in my community and the research community, is uh, equal financial resource sharing. So when I get a grant, we work on the grant together and that is not easy and it, and it, it doesn't always work well, right? Um, equal, equal resourcing for equal power and, and equal exchanging of intelligence. So that's another way in which you come to the community and you also earn their trust because you are recognizing their work and the community's intelligence. Um, you know, and then also flexibility. So you have to practice an, a level of like nimbleness, right? To know that just as you allow for your research aims to change, just as when you do basic science in the lab, and if you propose to develop a mouse model to do X, Y, Z, and that mouse model did not work, you have to figure out how to report that and you have to pivot. In the same manner, we have to practice that same level of nimbleness and ability to pivot in the community to recognize, for example, that if something is not working, that we are okay with their advice and helping us in figuring out how to rework it. I think that hopefully those those three things um, are valuable and are an extension of some of the conversations that we're having, but I think there are some of the conversations that we need to have more, like being nimble and being okay with things changing. Some very powerful comments that I think we all need to take to heart. And I think you had an example of a time where one of your study staff had made some assumptions about uh, the indigenous people and their religious feelings about the environment and had to uh, react to that. 
yeah, so we had a colleague who was developing some questions to sort of further interrogate this concept of cancer causal attribution and, uh, you know, learn about the spiritual aspect. And in the development of those questions, of course, they were um, inquiring or interrogating um, the, the the spiritual practices of like um, animists, for example, that oftentimes um, in what we see in some Native American communities uh, on the Northwest, for example, that may be more likely to have different practices around, um, you know, feathers, uh, you know, their, their spiritual beliefs around feathers and, um, you know, uh, forest and animals and things like that. And, um, and when we came back to this particular Native American community and we showed them those questions as we were developing, those questions did not resonate. Those were not part of their spiritual practice. And they were like, uh, we don't know what you're saying here because we're Christians. So, you know, they use Bible concepts, Bible principles, right? So it was very different. So it was a, a great moment of humility and and that sort of practice of pivot that I mentioned, right? But especially of humility to say, oh, you know, I made some assumptions and those assumptions did not resonate with this particular group, which is a just a really right, great example of how, you know, we cannot generalize, right? So here's a Native American community and, and practices differ as well. And we need to allow for that, um, you know, to, to rise to the occasion. And we wouldn't know that if we did not have, uh, again, the, the humility and foresight to bring these questions to the community and say, do these make sense to you? Yeah, I think that's so important because, um, like you, I have Hispanic heritage. And I heard a comment once where uh, a member of the community said, I'm tired of seeing every image of Latinos represented with food. We are, there's more to us than that. And I think that this ability to be humble and learn and get people out of the lab and into the community to build these relationships and understand is important. Um, and in particular, I would like to know your experience. We've been talking about uh, one population, but let's talk about the Latino populations uh, that are are, are very um, diverse across this country. And although we're looking for ways that we can uh, replicate and uh, repeat certain strategies as researchers, um, knowing that we need to be humble and approach it as a case-by-case -case basis, what do you think works really well for researchers in reaching uh, Latino and Hispanic communities for their research programs and in their catchment areas. Hmm. So this is really funny because the moment of, of levity here is that, so again, I'm Puerto Rican born and bred and I, I call myself Coqui, right? I'm, you know, graduated from the University of Puerto Rico, came here, grown for grad school, never intended to stay and, and ended up never leaving. But everybody from my family is still in Puerto Rico, except for my father who lives in Houston. So, and so I, um, sort of attribute a lot of my behaviors, right, to like all Puerto Ricans in the island, right? You know, I'm loud, I really <laughs> fast, I like dancing, and uh, and you know, over the years, you know, even my own, they're like, uh, <laughs> I think that's just you, Kathy, and and I'm 
through. That's all my own behaviors are really a reflection of my family, right? Not of all Puerto Rican families. Not all Puerto Ricans speak really fast. Not all Puerto Ricans, their entire family, you know, uh, likes to dance and every birthday party becomes a festival. So that's more my family. So now I'm recognizing, you know, this is part of my own bias. And so I think that it relates to the question that you're asking, because I think that in reaching the Latino community, exactly, we need to understand our and leave our own stereotypes at the door or rather recognize our stereotypes and sort of uh, figure out how to, how to work through those, right? That to, to come, once again, the concept of humility comes up. So what is the way to learn about these folks? We also, be beyond um, the recognition that we are not a monolith, right? There's another aspect that I think we recognize less, and that is that, um, uh, you know, so let me just uh, throw here an analogy. I work on the microbiome, and I, when I talk about the microbiome, I said the microbiome is spatially and temporally dynamic. <laughs> and I would like to say that cultures likely, in particular now my Latino culture, we too are probably spatially and temporally dynamic. So our heterogeneity, right, is is spatially and temporally as well. In other words, I need to, if I were to go now to work in Puerto Rico, which I'm planning on doing, I really need to let go of whatever stereotypes I had of the past of the Puerto Rico that I knew in the early 90s before I left the island to the Puerto Rico that I'm encountering now, which is a very different Puerto Rico, probably culturally than the one that I left. And so I, I think that one strategy for recruitment and engagement will also be that recognition. Same thing when we talk about the Black community, right? African-American community about same thing with Native Americans. We just gave an example that folks are not only, um, that are not monolith, but that they're spatially and temporally dynamic. Yeah, an, an excellent uh, way to explain that. And I do think that uh, this understanding Reaching this understanding uh, between cultures will benefit everyone in the research community. But I do also recognize that there are many who may have had a different upbringing and feel uncomfortable engaging in the populations that they want to reach. How do you translate these concepts to colleagues, perhaps, or collaborators um, how do you equip people with a different upbringing and background that may feel cautious uh, collaborating with or reaching out to these communities that may have a history of distrust with uh, the research or medical community or may may just um, be very, very different from the researchers that are trying to reach them? How do you how do you coach and uh, equip those researchers bridge the bridge the uh, I think they call it cross the chasm. <laughs> uh, so how do I connect my brothers and sisters and the basic scientists, for example, that are often more distant, more distal from this work? For scientists that have a different background, who may be white, middle class, upper middle class, and they feel, oftentimes they feel ill-equipped. They may even feel uncomfortable, even though they want to reach 
underrepresented populations? Yeah, so I think I got the gist of the question. I think, Molly, what you're asking is, right, how do we translate this for scientists, right, that are, for example, you know, from the majoritized group, the white community, right, that want to do this work? Um, you know, how do they engage in this kind of research in a way that is culturally aware, sensitive, and humble, that is, um, that they can do also meaningful work. Absolutely. Listen, uh, here's what I, I say. Um, and I, I'll, I'll give you the like sort of really, uh, um, uh, po political, political answer as in like, you know, power to the people answer. And then I'll, I'll get a bit more scholar, I guess I say, to my white brothers and sisters, I say we need one another. Um, racism and discrimination exist. They are real. They are not your individual fault. They are our collective history and responsibility. Does that make sense? And so we have to first and foremost acknowledge that. And I think that that, that acknowledgement is really important, especially for my white brothers and sisters, that's, that's one. And so with that acknowledgement, you come in once again, the word of the day is humility, right? With that kind of humility and knowing that the expectation when you come to do this work, is not that you understand, right? Um, this, the circumstances is that again, you have the humility and the awareness that that you don't understand, but you want to learn about it. And so then surround yourself with other scholars that perhaps have a better understanding, have the humility to bring in the be community forward, community facing, community first, and bring the right kind of partners and elevate, for example, members of the community that you are interested in serving through your research, right? So that they can help inform those research questions that they can help inform your design. So I think that, that those will be my, my sort of simple tidbits for my white scholar brothers and sisters. Again, humility forward. Know that the expectation is not that you know or understand and please don't pretend to understand that it is okay, right? You are here to learn alongside us, right? but bring and elevate the voices from those communities so that they can help inform your research and your research question. Also, know when to step aside. I think that's really important, regardless of, of race, by the way, but you know, just also know when to step aside and when to allow the other voice. For example, in my work with the Chicamani Truth Project, it is incredibly important that we, as much as possible, try to go to uh, the house of a community member as a diet with another community member. I'm not from there. I ain't got no business going there by myself. I don't know what I'm talking about. When we are together in a room and we are presenting and my colleagues from the Chickahominy tribe are present, I defer to them. They have the expertise, not me. I can provide them the data if they want around the numbers that I'm finding, but they are the experts, not me. I am just here presenting some numbers. They can contextualize. And so I think that the same applies to, um, you know, scholars from that come from different backgrounds that want to do this work. I also would like to take this opportunity to, to say, in general, this not only applies again to, to white scholars, but for scholars that want to do health equity work, that want to do health disparities research, to understand that this is a legitimate science 
with the kind of scientific rigor, the same scientific rigor as those uh, folks that do bench science or that do translational science that do clinical trials. And so that they practice respect for the expertise and respect for the training that it takes to do health disparities research and work, that there are metrics right, that, are, that have been validated, that they are methodologies, that they are grounding frameworks. And so to have respect for that scholarship and that before you call yourself a disparities research or before you want to do this work, that you really understand what exactly does that mean and the kinds of methodologies that exist. That was a whole other lens and to to this conversation and what you're talking about is truly collaborating yes collaborating in many different ways to achieve that scientific aim and i think it's a great segue to talk about the role of data because we have a lot to explore, I think, with regard to your, not just the work you're doing in the community or to reach communities with particular research, but to apply data, data sources and digital methods to your research. And you're talking about scientific rigor, um, metrics. Let's talk, let's, let's unpack that a little bit and talk about the role that data plays in reaching these communities and uh, studying, studying health disparities. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give you an example of something that just happened today. And I, I think I, I, I talked about it earlier when I was saying I didn't need a p-value to know that, you know, my community, I was food insecure or whatever, but if it makes you feel better, you know, I'm happy to get it. And so I, uh, earlier today, I, I was in a meeting uh, talking about Charles City County and, um, and, the, the community was speaking, they were presenting around uh, their general, um, what they feel are the main issues of the county, et cetera. And the main issues that they were expressing that are happening on the county, of course, uh, I was asked to prepare a presentation uh, of our summary of our data thus far and the, the themes that are emerging and the things that I'm finding from the data. And so they presented before I did. I had no need to present because what they shared were, is what I'm seeing on the data as well, right? And so yeah. um, I was asked to summarize the meeting in one word, what word would I use? And I said, affirming. Um, I had no need to share my data. I said, humbly, I, if you want to see it, I can show it, but my data simply puts a p-value in what you just said, right? Um, so I think that um, data is important for sure, um, especially for those of us that have made a career <laughs> in this, <laughs> um, it has a it has a value for sure. It is incredibly critical to make sure that we yes that we kind of certify that this is indeed a problem, and that in fact, if I invest resources in addressing this problem, I am going to improve the outcome of interest. Right. So it is incredibly valuable, and it's incredibly important that we design experiments that are scientifically rigorous, that, um, you know, we, we make sure that if we're going to make some causal claims that we have our ducks in a row, all of that is really valuable. Um, but again, you know, know that sometimes the community intelligence also is incredibly valuable. Make sure that you are assured um, by that. I think um, one thing around data that I would like to say is that we in the scientific community still need to evaluate and still need a 
paradigm shift about what data is and what data is not. Um, you know, we all live in this whole concept of the streetlight bias. Our very, we need to recognize and understand and sort of accept in our faces that our very research questions, the way in which we design the research questions, which choose to illuminate this area right here, based on what we want to interrogate, is in itself a bias approach, right? Because you are making the choice to say that this area right here is the most important, and this other area over here that is in the dark, you have chosen not to illuminate. And so by virtue of that, you are making a biased assumption that this is what you think is more important. You can say it is based on some data, but we have to understand that, right? Then also for yeah. people like me, I'm a very quantitative scientist. So for me, data means numbers. For a qualitative scientist, data means words. Um, but we also have to recognize that there's a whole host of other data is nothing but information. And there's a lot of information that we don't capture, which if you ever see me talk, you see me show this picture of the manhole in a mammography facility. Um, and it's a picture that I took many years ago that will go on to transform my career. And I show it because it is an example of a data point that I was blind to, that my forms, my questionnaires, my surveys had no way of accounting for. but the Individuals that were working in that institution, when I came in to evaluate them because they were poor performers based on the numbers that I had collected, the, the technologists that worked there were very clear to point out, yeah, your data is really cute, but your data, yes, of course, you miss the fact that there's a manhole in here and I have to come in to work under these kinds of conditions, but you also miss the fact that your data doesn't account for the fact that I have no adapters to adapt uh, for the size of a woman's breast. I have no way to position a woman that is arthritic or kyphotic or obese. Um, I am missing light bulbs in my light boxes that I cannot order. And so I am sorry that my recall rate is really high based on my mammography quality metrics. I am sorry that I have, that you say I have a high rate of loss to follow up because I don't. Um, so your data is flawed. Your data is missing data points that simply your tools fail to collect. Wow. I, I can see why that transformed uh, your, your mindset. That is an incredible story. But I'm hoping that in a few weeks, we're going to hear more stories and how those individual examples help us to become better scientists, because you're having an event um, that I do want to talk about on this podcast, a, a conference, the Catchment Area Data Analytics event in just a few weeks at VCU. I'd like to talk about uh, what is the impetus of this of this conference, what are you looking forward to? I'm definitely going to be there, and um, I'm excited about really uh, learning more from you and your colleagues and collaborators and a lot of other cancer centers that will be there. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you for, for elevating the conference. So the, the conference is the first um, catchment area data science conference, and it's called, you know, Cancer Catchment Area Data Beyond Definition. And the impetus for the conference is that, um, as, as, as you know, and, and some of the audience may not know, for <clears throat> cancer centers, and this is somewhat recent, I would say, as of the last maybe less than 10 years, 
cancer centers have been pushed, cancer centers that are seeking designation from the National Cancer Institute or that have designation have been pushed to define their catchment area, which means where the patients that they serve come from. And that desire came, was motivated by, in a sense, around this whole conversation of, you know, who you serve, how you serve, how you're using your money, right? And it was motivated yeah. by the fact that there are these cancer centers that, that get this money and maybe they're investing it in a cancer that they, it is of interest to this researcher, but perhaps it's not a cancer that is salient in the community that they serve. So there were, you know, some, uh, you know, different news, et cetera, that we talk about different areas where like the community was getting sicker while these institutions were doing better. And so it's a way of holding us accountable. So as a result of that, through the years, this conversation has, um, have, has become incredibly important. And it's become sort of like this revolution of developing tools and strategies to define the catchment, to um, generate tools that inform then the research that a cancer center does, the outreach that a cancer center does the clinical service that the can that our cancer center offer offers at times. And so that whole field of catchment area data science um, has really sort of exploded in the last few years. And so the impetus for this is to bring all of those folks together to have a, a convening and a conversation around to level set, to see what we are all creating. How do we co-create? How do we move together? You know that in academia, we love our silos. We are enamored with <laughs> silos. <laughs> but, you know, but, in, but in our quest, you know, as you know, though, the, the world, right, the, is, is moving towards data democracy, data like openness, data sharing, uh, open source software, artificial intelligence, data integration. And so I think that this is an opportunity for all of us to come together and say, here's all that we have. What are we all doing? How are we all doing it? Where are the commonalities? Where are the differences? And how can we grow to have it together, right? To augment and enhance what we each are doing for the betterment of the folks that we say that we serve, right? Cancer centers are, those that are particularly designated, are supposed to be beacons to generate like generalizable knowledge, right? Knowledge that really serves everybody, not just this area, but really to all. And for that, I think that we need a collective, collaborative, cohesive effort. And we're hoping that this conference is a catalyst for that kind of um, collaborative growth. Awesome. And I'm so excited that I'm going to be there because Vibrant will be there and you're yeah. speaking my language. But now I want to ask you to bring this back to the community outreach, community engagement, because I want your opinion looking forward, because Vibrant is a, we, we emphasize outreach, patient centricity, uh, data collection, and, and engagement as really a cohesive part of the patient's journey and research. And I want to know where you see roles for Vibrant, for example, and, and really community activation with digital methods in the next three to five years? Where's the relevance, do you think? Uh, where, where are we heading as a research community? Yeah, I think that a place like uh, an organization like Vibrant is vital and critical in community engagement, right? As, as we just talked about, we are not, no community is a monolith, right? 
And mm -hmm. so this information that Vibrant collects, this approaches that you guys use to measure how we engage community, the intricacies of that, the background of the, the process of research, that data is incredibly valuable to, for us to sort of maximize uh, the benefit in, that, that our research can have in the community. So we, I, I think that you guys are incredibly critical and we need that information to improve our approaches, to improve um, our methodologies, right? So, and, and also to bring some kind of cohesive message because for example, so I just told you about truth. Those are my lessons and I have my lessons over here, my little drawer. And so how mm -hmm. do I share those lessons? I think places, platforms like Vibrant are platforms that can come together to basically um, develop systems so that whatever my lessons are can be um, systematized and programmed and others can benefit from those less from those collective lessons learned. So at the next time around, the next project, we do it better and, and we can maximize our impact, the impact of our research in the community. Absolutely. A shared vision. Well, Dr. Tassos, we've had a great wide ranging conversation today. I'm so grateful I got to have you to myself for a conversation. Thank you again for joining me and I'm looking forward to this event. Tell us the dates and location just to wrap up. Yes, the event is going to be December 7th through the 9th. It's going to be here in Richmond, Virginia. We want Richmond to become a hub for uh, cancer data folks like myself. We're going to have um, uh, the American Association for Cancer Institute, the American, um, the Association for Community Cancer Centers and representation from hundreds and hundreds of different cancer centers. So if you have folks that are interested in cancer data and interested in making inferences about data, um, definitely register for the conference. Awesome. I can't wait. Thank you again. Thank you, Molly. Thanks so much for listening to the People of Precision Health podcast. To join us next time, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about how we're helping to engage the humans behind the data, visit vibranthealth with an e.com.